Morning, church. What a blessing to be led in prayer. Isn't that a blessing? If you're a guest, my name is Kelly. I serve as senior pastor. We're glad you're here. We always pray that our guests would feel a quick, a deep sense of belonging as you're in worship with us weekly. Our passage for this morning begins with a simple historical statement. Here it is. It's on the screen. In the year that King Uzziah died. Do you know the story of Uzziah, king of Judah? Turn with me in your copy of the scripture to Isaiah chapter 6. We're going to begin a new sermon series titled, God is Faithful. Whether you know the story of Uzziah or not, this opening in chapter 6 begs a question. Why did Isaiah locate the events of his prophetic ministry in the year that King Uzziah died. What about Uzziah's death helps us better understand all that is recorded in the book of Isaiah? The short answer is that God's faithful, even though his people are faithless. The book of 2 Chronicles tells the story of King Uzziah. He was a good king for Judah, but had a difficult end to his life. Uzziah was an above-average king in Judah's history, ascending to the throne when he was only 16 years old. Can you imagine? 16 years old, and then reigning as king for 52 years. In general, we can say that Uzziah was a good king. 2 Chronicles chapter 26 uh, tells a summary of his life as king, his, his reign. It's on the screen, a portion of it. There in 2 Chronicles we read, He did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, just as his father Amaziah had done. He sought God during the days of Zechariah, who instructed him in the fear of God. Zechariah was a priest who coached Uzziah in the things of godliness. And then the Chronicle notes, As long as he sought the Lord... God gave him success, speaking of Uzziah's reign. The author goes on to detail some of Uzziah's successes. You could read it later today, uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 26. There, uh, the chronicle, chronicler notes uh, some of the things that Uzziah built, the public works in and around Jerusalem, as well as his military prowess in subduing his enemies. Uzziah's power grew because God gave him great success, a reward for Uzziah's faithfulness. But then the narrative shifts. Look at Uzziah's ending. It's on the screen, verse 16 of the same chapter, chapter 26. After Uzziah became powerful, his pride led to his downfall. He was unfaithful to the Lord his God. How was he unfaithful? The chronicler notes, he entered the temple of the Lord to burn incense on the altar of incense. Uzziah had such success that it went to his head. And pride led him to usurp powers that were not his to be had as king. The ministry of burning incense in the temple was reserved only for the priests of God, and God struck Uzziah with leprosy. 
as a consequence of his arrogance and his burning incense, something he wasn't to be doing. Leprosy being a highly contagious skin disease, Uzziah spent the rest of his days in a strict quarantine. Now, quarantine, uh, for most of my life and most of our lives, didn't mean a whole bunch until the last few years, right, of COVID. We know what it's like to be in quarantine, but Uzziah was placed in quarantine for the balance of his life. Strict quarantine, cut off from family, cut off from the court that he was to, uh, to rule over, cut off from the citizens of his nation, and couldn't enter the temple for worship. Here's a summary of the close to his life, chapter 26 of Second Chronicles. King Uzziah had leprosy until the day he died. He lived in, in a separate house, leprous and banned from the temple of the Lord. Jotham, his son, had charge of the palace, so his boy took over, and Jotham governed the people of the land. Uzziah rested with his ancestors and was buried, the word, near. Not with, but near. It's interesting. Near them, his ancestors, in a cemetery that belonged to the kings, for people said he had leprosy. So even in his burial, he's ostracized. He's kept separate. All right. Well, there are obvious lessons to be learned from Uzziah's life about the destructive nature of pride. It brought severe consequences into his life as king. He sought God for many years. God made him prosper as a result. But then in his prosperity, he was overcome by pride. When he grew strong, he was actually struck by God with a plague of leprosy. Ironically, this is the very same path that Israel knew as a nation, the very same experience that Israel had as a nation. It had started well for Israel. It went well. They entered the land. They grew in strength. They sought God. God made them prosper. But as their power and influence grew, their pride grew and their, their immorality grew, which brought destruction on them. Israel had forgotten God, and they suffered as a result. And there was this long, tragic decline for the nation that mirrored the demise of this king, Uzziah. And so as the king dies, the nation, at that time divided, would have noted. They would have thought to ourselves, well, now our king has failed. After some 52 years of prosperity, even our king has failed. Imagine how devastating that must have been for Judah, for Israel as a whole. Now, as important as the cautionary tale is of Uzziah's life and his demise, and it is important to consider as a people ourselves having great power and influence, that's our experience as Americans, we have great power, we have great influence, we have great wealth and prosperity. So it's important to consider the cautionary tale of Uzziah's pride and his downfall. At the same time, that cautionary tale, I don't think, is the primary reason that Isaiah notes his death. I don't think it's the primary reason that Isaiah opens his prophetic ministry 
noting Uzziah's death. There might be, and I think there is, a greater, more important message in the simple refrain, in the year that King Uzziah died, being the opening to Isaiah's prophetic message. Here's what I think is more profound. Uzziah was sinful and died. God is holy and eternally alive. I think noting Uzziah's pride is valuable. Only in comparison to noting God's holiness and the fact that he's alive. The message of Isaiah includes... It's a message to the people of Judah, as well as many other nations. But it's ultimately a message about who God is. He alone is holy, and he's alive. More important than Uzziah's devastating pride is God's unmatched holiness and power and sovereignty, which comes through clearly in the balance of Isaiah 6. It's on the screen. If you have your copy of God's Word open, follow along. We see the opening line there. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted. Uzziah is sinful and he died as a result. God is high and lifted up and alive. Seated on a throne, the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him were seraphim, each with six wings. With two wings they covered their faces, with two they covered their feet, with two they were flying, and they were calling out to one another, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth is full of his glory. Uzziah is dead. But God is holy and alive. At the sound of their voices, the doorposts and thresholds shook, and the temple was filled with smoke. And then Isaiah's response to this vision, Woe to me, I cried, I'm ruined. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips, and my eyes have seen the King, the Lord Almighty. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sin atoned for. We'll pause there for just a minute. Isaiah ministered in the 8th century B.C., before Christ was born, about 750 years before Jesus was born, which was during the era of Israel's history in which there was a divided kingdom. There's a map on the screen. At this time, the kingdom of Israel had split into two separate nations. The kingdom referred to in the south is the kingdom of Judah. The kingdom referred to in the north is the, the kingdom of Israel. There's a geopolitical divide there, blue and what I guess is tan, Judah's kingdom down below. The capital of Judah would be Jerusalem. This is where Isaiah ministered, there in Judah, in the capital city of Jerusalem. In this vision, Isaiah sees clearly that although Judah's king is now dead, 
the king of all creation, is alive and well. And although Uzziah was sinful, we all know about his sin, the, the people of Judah and Israel would have known of his sin, of pride which led to leprosy. God is holy, holy, holy. This should give us tremendous hope. Just as Isaiah meant for it to give the nation of Judah great hope. Just as Uzziah was sinful, we are sinful. And just as Uzziah died, we will die. Not of leprosy, Lord willing, right? But um, we all die. Our loved ones die, our heroes die, our leaders die. Death is the common denominator among humanity. But God is alive. God is not sinful, and he does not die. God is holy, 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 which means perfect in his character. And as a result, he he is eternally alive eternally in control of all things. Mark notes this when he calls us to pray, right? We pray knowing that God is in control. We pray knowing that the outcome will, of all our lives will bring him glory. It'll be in our good, our best interest, even though in this world we suffer. Things are never out of God's control. They feel like they're out of our control and They are, in many respects, out of our control. But we're called to pray. We're called to trust. We're called to hope. Because we serve a living God. The one who is alive and gives gives life and sustains all life. The whole earth being full of his glory. Remember the seraphim, the six-winged creatures? Note as much, the holy, holy, holy is the Lord Almighty. The whole earth full of his glory. Repetition in the Hebrew language, which was the original language in which the Old Testament was written. Repetition is meant to intensify. Holy, holy, the triplicate here, holy. He's not simply holy, he's three times holy. Their seraphim are verbally illustrating God's utter uniqueness, separate from his created order and all the beings in creation is God. Their declaration shook the doorposts of the temple. The temple is filled with smoke. I find it particularly interesting to think of Uzziah, the king, dying separate from his family, separate from the citizens of his kingdom, not even allowed to be buried with, but only near his ancestors because of his leprous condition brought by his sin. That was Uzziah's experience. But God... He dwells with his creation. Do you see that here? Surrounded by seraphim, above his throne, singing of his character. Isaiah notes that God lives and reigns surrounded by his creation, with those he's created. Now remember in all this, Isaiah, uh, his vision, he, he only sees the train of God's robe, the Literal is the hem of the garment. And as he sees God high and lifted up and the threshold and the doorposts are shaking and the temple's filling with smoke, 
his first experience emotionally is not comfort. It's actually fear. He says, woe to me. That's his response to his vision. Woe to me, or doomed am I, may be the way to say it. I cried out, I'm ruined, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm sinful. I live among a sinful people, an unclean people. Yet my eyes have seen God, the King, the Lord Almighty. Comfort will come to Isaiah, without a doubt. But it's not his initial experience in seeing God clearly. His initial experience is that of terror. Woe to me. I am undone. Because I am sinful. It's not just Uzziah who's sinful. It's not just the nation who's sinful and now is divided because of their their infidelity to God. I'm sinful as well which means he must be cared for by God. Mark my words, okay? If we want to know more of God's grace and mercy, we must first know and see clearly God's holiness. I hope this resonates with us. I hope this makes sense to us. If we want to know, and we do, I know, I know myself well enough, I know the congregation that I help shepherd well enough, we want to experience God's grace and mercy. Folks, the experience of God's grace and mercy comes after having, or while having a distinct vision of his holiness. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. We must first see clearly his glory, his power, his sovereignty, and our culpability before him. God's grace and mercy are never experienced in a vacuum. God's grace and mercy are experienced only after we catch a glimpse of our certain condemnation because of our sinfulness. We sang this morning, the light has come. Reminding me of John 3, where Jesus said, light has come into the world, but men loved darkness. He's talking about himself. He says, I am the light of the world. Grace and mercy are experienced only. The light is only seen in the darkness, right? Grace and mercy experienced as we catch a glimpse of God's holiness and we have a sense of our certain condemnation because of our sinfulness. This is the tragedy of much within the modern American church movement. In an effort to help people come closer to God, having good desires, wanting to see people come closer to God, we have made the mistake of downplaying his holiness in some respects. But in the absence of making these realities plain, people fail to see their need for God's grace and mercy. I'm praying this makes sense to us. In the absence of the realities of God's holiness, his power, his glory, his authority, his sovereignty, the whole earth being filled with his glory, 
people fail to see their real need for his care in their dislocation from him because of their sinfulness. They, they fail to see their unholiness, their shame because of their sin, their weakness. Only when we see him as high and lifted up can we receive all that God offers us in his grace and mercy. Only in terror, woe is me, I'm ruined, in the experience of condemnation, do we experience the miracle, and it's a miracle, of having our guilt taken away. Those are Isaiah's words. No, I'm sorry, it's the seraphim's words to Isaiah. His guilt is taken away. His sin atoned for. I'll read it for you again. It's on the screen. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a live coal in his hand, which he had taken with tongs from the altar. With it he touched my mouth and said, See, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away. Your sin atoned for. Your unclean lips addressed. What a beautiful picture of God's care. Isaiah stood before the Lord in utter terror, and then he's cared for. Isaiah felt hopeless, woe is me. He didn't even bother to ask for cleansing. He's so far back on his heels in his sin. Woe is me, I'm ruined is his thought. I'm hopeless. He doesn't cry out and ask for God's care. God initiates care. God sends the seraphim to care for him, delivering him from sin, providing for him in his filthy state. He was paralyzed, completely struck, stuck in his sin. God intervenes, God initiates, God goes to him and takes away his guilt. Have you experienced as much? Have you experienced the utter and complete culpability of a creature before his creator? Followed by that soothing experience of complete cleanliness and forgiveness. You can. You can experience it this morning if you've never experienced it. Make no mistake, God is holy perfect, powerful, sovereign over all creation. We are sinful and stand rightly and justly condemned before him because of our sin. Woe is us. But the good news is God has cared for us. God has initiated. While we were yet sinners, Christ came and died for us. The good news is so good because the bad news is so bad. The good news is that God has cared for us in our sinful state by sending his son. Far too many people live with guilt unaddressed, like a low-grade fever. Far too many people live active, moving through their daily lives, accomplishing various tasks while guilt plagues them. God would have us have Isaiah's experience. Guilt taken away. That's why Jesus came. 
to take away our guilt, to atone for our sins. Paul writes in Romans 8 verse 1, there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. Trusting in Christ doesn't mean we're perfect. It means we've been cared for in our sinfulness. Atonement means to remove sin. Sin is any action or attitude contrary to the character of God. Any attitude or action contrary to the person of God who's holy, holy, holy. Doesn't take much to understand that we are sinful and in need of his care. In the Old Testament, making atonement most often involved the shedding of blood, which happened on the altar. These sacrifices were made on the altar. That's what's in view here. When the seraphim go to the altar, remove a coal, and touch Isaiah's lips with it. To care for his sin from the altar. Application of animal blood to the altar was a symbolic ransoming of human sin. Ultimately, because it was impossible for the blood of animals to take away sin, the Old Testament sacrifices foreshadowed the perfect and complete atonement made for humanity by the perfect human, Jesus Christ. The Old Testament sacrifices foreshadow the New Testament sacrifice of Christ. It was a human sinfulness issue. It was the human condition of sinfulness that required a human sacrifice of a perfect person, God himself in the flesh, Jesus Christ. Look at how Paul described the atonement in Romans. God presented Christ as a sacrifice of atonement through the shedding of his blood to be received by faith. The same care that Isaiah experienced in the year that Uzziah died, we can experience through faith this morning in Jesus. If you'd like that experience, simply express it to your Creator. Talk to God like you'd talk to your best friend or to, to anybody, really. God, I thank you for sending the atoning sacrifice needed for my sin, our sin, collectively. Help me to trust in your son. Help me to follow after your son. It doesn't have to be eloquent. It, it doesn't need to be expressed. What does it mean to follow Jesus? The balance of today's passage captures it, I think, well. Jesus said, all who would come after me must pick up their cross daily and follow after me. Look at Isaiah's life after atonement. Isaiah 6, 8. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send? Do you know God is on mission? God's up to something in the world, in the universe, throughout all time. Who, sh who shall I send? Who will go for us? And I said, Isaiah's response, Here I am, send me. He said, Go and tell this people. Here's the message. Be ever hearing, but never understanding. Be ever seeing, but never perceiving. Make the heart of this people calloused. Make their ears dull and close their eyes. Otherwise, they might see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and turn and be healed. That's a hard message. 
Then I said, Isaiah says, For how long, Lord, do I speak such a hard message? And he said, Until the cities lie in ruin and without inhabitants, until the houses are left deserted and the fields ruined and ravaged, until the Lord has sent everyone far away and the land is utterly forsaken. He's just saying judgment's coming to this nation. And though a tenth remains in the land, it'll again be laid waste. But as the terebinth and the oak leaf stumps when they are cut down, so the holy seed will be the stump in the land. In other words, I'll not utterly destroy this people. Following Jesus as a disciple means living on mission. It means answering a call to go. We'll close the service in a couple minutes. Um, commissioning uh, a women's ministry team on their way to Switzerland. They're going. Jesus said right before his ascension in Matthew 28, it's recorded. He says, go, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey all that I've commanded you. This women's ministry team is going to go. We're people sent out today into our neighborhoods. Mark led us in a prayer for those who are not yet believing. We're to go. Look for opportunities to share. Now, admittedly, Isaiah's mission field was a hard one. God tells him that the listeners will not hear, understand, or embrace what he's saying. Lord willing, our mission field in DuPage County and beyond will be easier. And we do see people coming closer to faith in Christ. Seven were baptized at both of our campuses, this campus, Poplar Creek, last weekend. We praise God for that. The good news of the gospel is that God, who's infinite in mercy, had no plans to wipe out all of Israel, but to leave this stump, this holy seed, through whom Christ would come, the Messiah. He has determined to preserve, in Isaiah's day, a remnant Today, we benefit from God's mercy on Israel. We benefit from the Messiah who's come through Israel, giving his life for us. And now we're sent out with the message that people must, that we're culpable, that we must repent of our sin and trust in God's Messiah who wants to atone for our sin, who wants to comfort us and take away our guilt. It really is good news. Let me pray for us. Father, would you empower us for mission? Would you work in our lives to see you clearly, high and lifted up and holy? May we have the experience, if it's not yet happened to some in this room, of their guilt taken away. Help us preach the good news in the days ahead of your holiness, 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 and your care for us as sinful through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.